you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and if you don't, we've got some in the back for you. We're going to open up to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation is going to be at the very back of the Bible, and chapter 19 is almost the very last chapter of Revelation. So I'll give you a second to turn there, Revelation chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 11 this morning. We came through the first half of the chapter last week, and last week we saw a great doxology or a great uh, praise break out in heaven. And those occupants of heaven praised the Lord for three big reasons. That is, because sin had been judged, because God is reigning, and because the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's why they were praising. And this week, we finally come to this climactic event in the book of Revelation, and truly the climactic event in all of human history. It's all leading up to the second coming of Christ, to rule on the earth. And that's what we've come to this week. During this scene, the beast and the false prophet are captured And they're thrown into the lake of fire, and then the rest of their armies are killed. And look, we tend to look at the Bible sometimes, and we're like, oh, it's a a nice story of all of these happy people doing happy things. That is not an accurate view of the Bible. The Bible is gritty, and it's real, and it's it's very... um, descriptive of humans, even. This chapter is not an easy chapter to deal with in our hearts because there is judgment and there's death and there's righteousness. It's hard for us. This is where we are this morning. And if you're with us this morning, that means that you were supposed to be here when we're going through this chapter. So I hope that it speaks to you in a special way this morning. Let's go ahead and read through verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19:11. Now I saw heaven opened. This is John writing, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them, with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That is the climactic end of the earth as we know it today. And after this um, is ushered in this period of a thousand years where Christ physically reigns on the earth. That will be an exciting time, but there's birth pangs. 
There's things that have to happen before that to usher that time in. And this is the finality of those things. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This event of the second coming has got to be one of the most anticipated and most prophesied events in all of Scripture. The thread of references to this specific event starts way back in the Garden of Eden. We have this account in Genesis 3 when the serpent deceived Eve and then she and Adam sinned. God pronounced curses on each of those three parties, beginning with the serpent, then Eve, and then Adam. And first to the serpent, he says this, because you have done this, that is deceive Eve, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the rest of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And at this time when Christ rides in on this white horse in power and great glory, not Greg Laurie, great glory. Every time I say that, I think Greg Laurie. He'll be there too. When Christ rides in on a white horse in power and great glory, he will fulfill God's promise to the serpent that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent's seed. And this event also marks the defeat of Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon, who we know as Satan. Satan's two top dogs, this Antichrist and false prophet, are captured and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Satan isn't there yet at that point. In the beginning of chapter 20, it tells us that Satan is locked up in the bottomless pit, the abuso, for the duration of Christ's millennial kingdom, that is, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And after that thousand years, Satan is released back to the earth for a short time to deceive the nations, do whatever it is he loves to do. And after that, Satan is then thrown into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist and false prophet. Now, to give you a little greater context about this event of the second coming, I'm just going to make a few references from other parts of Scripture so we get a a fuller view of what's going on here. Starting with Revelation 1.7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So we see here, every eye will see him. And those that have rejected him will mourn because they basically know what's coming next. In Matthew 24, 30, Jesus uses similar language. And this is probably where John gets the idea for what he writes in Revelation 1.7. Jesus said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then in Matthew 24, just a couple verses before 30 in verse 27, Jesus said, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And that also speaks to the widespread witnessing of his coming. It will be seen across the globe. And you will not, if you're on the earth for this time, which I hope that you're not, you will not need someone to say, Look, there is Christ. It it won't be necessary. All the armies of the world, all possibly all the unbelievers in the world are gathered together at Armageddon 
in that valley of Megiddo. It will be obvious when Jesus Christ rides in on this white horse in power and great glory. You saw back in Revelation 6 another rider of a white horse. It's possible that some people who are alive today could witness that event. Whether it's actually someone riding in on a white horse or whether it speaks more figuratively of the Antichrist, we know that he is an imposter of Christ. And the, the passage in chapter 6 has fooled a lot of commentators. They take that rider of the white horse to be Christ himself, when in reality, it's the pseudo-Christ or the Antichrist. It will be obvious when Christ comes. And I don't believe that believers who are alive today will witness the coming of Christ from the earth. They'll be riding with him from heaven. And we'll look at that. Back when Jesus opened his ministry on the earth, he got baptized. Okay, that was like the first thing that he did. He went to the wilderness. He was tempted for 40 days by Satan himself. By the way, you got to be pretty important if Satan himself comes to tempt you because he cannot be in all places at one time. He is bound by locality. So Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Jesus then goes into his hometown, into the synagogue in Nazareth. What he does there is he makes this statement that he is the Messiah. That's effectively what he does. And this is recorded in Luke 4. He was given a scroll of Isaiah to read from. At that time, they would just do some readings of the scripture, the Old Testament at this point as well. As he took the scroll, he opened it up to Isaiah 61, and he started reading. He read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops at that comma there. He didn't finish the sentence. He closes the scroll, and he sits down. He did not read the next phrase, and the day of the vengeance of our God. He stopped right before that. Why did he stop there? Why didn't he finish that verse? Because that wasn't the mandate for his first coming. His first coming is not to bring vengeance. His first coming is to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound. That was his mandate for his incarnation, his first coming. But... At his second coming, he will fulfill the rest of that sentence, the day of vengeance of our God. That's his mandate for the second coming. And of course, in that synagogue, the Jews there knew what Jesus was saying. They knew exactly what he was getting at. He was saying, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. But even if he... Even if they didn't catch on to that, he really spelled it out for him. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Then they tried to throw him off a cliff, but he got away. He has a tendency to do that. Several times in the scripture, you see people coming after him, and it says, he slipped through the crowd, or he slipped away. His second coming is what we're looking at in Revelation 19. This is his proclamation of the day of vengeance of our God. Verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, that is, and look at this. Lend an eye, lend an ear to this. Consider this, a white horse. And this must have been an 
awe-inspiring horse because it kind of takes John aback. It causes him to write, and behold, he pauses for a moment, a white horse. I wonder what this horse looked like. I tend to think that our horses on earth are but a shadow of what's in heaven, as the whole earth is. It's just a shadow of a larger reality. And there's some interesting things with physics that actually prove that point. We live in a digital simulation. It's but a shadow of a much larger reality. You know, there are plenty of scriptural references to animals in heaven. I believe that there will be animals in heaven. We have here this heavenly horse, and it says that Jesus' entire armies followed him on horses. So there's got to be something to that. But we don't see any evidence of animals being reborn in Christ and becoming Christian animals. So the animals on earth, I don't expect to see in heaven with us. So it seems like animals are in heaven. It seems like those animals are heavenly in nature. They're not the same as the flesh and blood animals that we have down here. I don't know what this horse is going to look like, but it's going to be a sight to behold. And I think we each get a a similar horse. And I'm a little bit concerned because I'm not that great at riding a horse. I think Summer will be okay and Beth will probably be okay. The rest of us will might have to learn. We'll have at least seven years to figure it out, so we'll be good. No, but I think that, that we'll know exactly what to do when our time comes. These horses must be majestic. And John says that heaven opened. And this horse was right there. There's no indication that it took any time at all, really, for this horse and his rider, Jesus Christ, to make an appearance. It was almost instantaneously. It didn't take him years to ride in from some distant place, which begs the question for us, how far is heaven? Now, that's interesting to consider because we tend to think of heaven as a faraway place. And we think of heaven and hell in terms of up and down. And while the scripture does use that kind of language, and that's okay to think of it that way, heaven is probably not far. Um, there's, it's very difficult to wrap our minds around the greater levels of dimensionality. You know, We inhabit three spatial dimensions and time, which adds up to four dimensions. Heaven is a place of greater dimensionality. And this just boggles our mind, and we cannot wrap our minds around it. So in order to help us, I like to make a reference to my friends, Mr. and Mrs. Flat. And Mr. and Mrs. Flat suffer from a very serious condition their flatness. They occupy only two dimensions. So if I had thought more ahead of time, I would have drawn them out for you. But imagine (laughs) that I have a piece of paper with two stick figures drawn on it. They're Mr. and Mrs. Flat. And they can interact with each other. They both inhabit two dimensions. They cannot directly interact with us because we enjoy greater dimensionality. And if I have that piece of paper in front of me with Mr. and Mrs. Flat, I can actually observe them no matter where they are in their little dimension, and I can enjoy a much greater proximity to them than they can with each other. And I can even be almost infinitely close to them both at the same time. Because I'm not confined to two dimensions, but three. So looking down a level, we can kind of see what it will be like to occupy greater dimensions. 
And I'll let you try to extrapolate that illustration to dimensions greater than four, because that's really where our understanding tends to fail us. But we can gain a bit of insight there by looking down in dimensions. Now, Scripture even describes heaven as being close to us. So I can be close to Mr. and Mrs. Flat. I'm not far in distance but they can't directly perceive me. Now, if I took my finger and I thrust it through the page, then they might have an idea that something's going on. But what would they actually perceive there? Not even a circle, just a line. Because the two-dimensional beings observe things in one dimension, just like us three-dimensional beings observe things in two dimensions. And if you don't cheat by looking at the reflection in the window, you can't tell how many fingers I'm holding up because you observe me in two dimensions. If you observe me in three, you could see all around me. That's a very, very interesting concept here. Now, let's look at some scriptural passage, several of them, that speak to the proximity of heaven. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So wherever heaven is, God resides there, and he can hear us from heaven. Interesting. 1 Kings 19. Elijah had just called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel with that face-off against the prophets of Baal. And word had gotten back to Queen Jezebel that this had happened, and she was looking for Elijah to kill him. So he ran for his life, literally, and he eventually came to a cave. Then the Lord called him out to a mountain. On that mountain, he stood before the Lord. And verses 11 and 12 of 1 Kings 19 say, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still, small voice. So wherever heaven is, God can speak to us from there using a still, small voice. He doesn't have to raise his voice to speak to Elijah. After the resurrection, Jesus was able to step into and out of rooms from wherever heaven was. Obviously, with a body inhabiting more than four dimensions. 2 Kings 6, 8 through 23. I'm not going to read all of that for you. You're welcome. Elisha was at Dothan, and he was surrounded by enemy troops. And his servant was worried because it looked like they were outgunned. But Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant to the reality of the situation. And he looked outside, and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. This heavenly army, this host of angels, was right there on the mountain. In Acts 7, when Stephen finished speaking, he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It just says he gazed up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That doesn't sound very far off. When John the Baptist went to baptize Jesus, Matthew 3.16 says that heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended on Christ like a dove. What did that look like? And how far did the dove descend from? It doesn't say they were waiting there for ages for this dove to come down and light on Jesus. Of course, heaven is outside of time, but I believe it is close in proximity to us. 
And that can be a great source of comfort, I think. So heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He was there. And as amazed as John was at the horse, that's not even the best part. Because there was a rider of the horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. This horse's rider is none other than the glorified Christ, coming to judge and make war, which he does in righteousness. Faithful. The idea is trustworthy and genuine. True. The idea is dependable and sincere. That sounds pretty good to me. You know, in this world where even the news outlets, which is a place that we're supposed to be able to come through, come to for truth, for sincerity, even they are feeding us lies. And it's hard to find someone trustworthy and sincere. But it is comforting to know at least one whom we can depend on. We hear politicians constantly talking about what they're going to do. You know, I promise if I'm elected, I'll do this. But they're not dependable. The monarch that's coming, that is Jesus Christ, is faithful and he is true. This title of faithful and true was used by Jesus in addressing himself to the church of Laodicea in his letter in Revelation 3. Verse 14 is where he makes that reference to the faithful and true. It says, in, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And the tense here is timeless. It says, in righteousness, he always judges and always makes war. So this isn't just speaking of this one event in his second coming when these actions are righteous, but for all time. For all of time, he judges and he makes war. We know from other scriptures that all judgment is committed to the hand of the Son. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Now, he doesn't say that Jesus' eyes were a flame of fire, but he says they were like a faint flame of fire, using a simile. And of course, this description of eyes like a flame of fire, speaks of judgment. And Jesus addresses himself to the church of Thyatira, back in Revelation 2.18, as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. And both of those descriptors, eyes of flame of fire, feet of fine brass, or burnished brass, that is brass that is heated up, to an almost molten state, both of those references speak of judgment. And you remember that Jesus threatened to cast those who commit spiritual adultery with Jezebel into the great tribulation. That's also, that promise is contained in the same letter to Thyatira, where Jesus is spoken of in terms of judgment. And that is quite a judgment, casting those into the great tribulation. Now it says also, on on his head were many crowns, that is diadems, or ruler's crowns, as opposed to the Stephanos, which was given to a victor of the games. If you win a weightlifting meet, they give you a little medal. Back in the day, if you won that, they'd give you a little wreath that you would place on your head. That's a Stephanos. These crowns that Jesus is wearing are diadems. That's a different kind of crown, and that's a ruler's crown. It's not given to a winner. It's given to a ruler, and it says that he's wearing many of them. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. This is distinct from the name that we all know, which it tells us in verse 16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What we're seeing in 
verse 12, is his incommunicable divine name that no one knew. So it's different from King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's entertaining to see commentators who try to come up with what this incommunicable name is. Of course, they would save their time by just reading the verse that no man knew except himself. So save your time there, save your breath. Nobody knows what this name is. Verse 13, he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That may catch us off guard. The Greek word that's translated dipped is bapto, and that's the root of our word baptize. This robe was dipped or dunked in blood, which gave it this deep red color. And this blood doesn't seem to be his own atoning blood that his robe is dipped into, but the blood of his enemies. This is a gruesome picture. Isaiah 63 describes the coming of the Lord in a way that shocks a lot of people. Verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah 63. Pay attention to the solidarity of this action. Pay attention to the absolute power, the control of this situation that Jesus has. Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Now, in quotes, this is someone speaking, Jesus. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. It's the enemy's blood that stains his robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. Okay, that speaks back to the passage in Isaiah 61 that we talked about at the beginning, the day of vengeance of our God. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm has brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it's just, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Now, it's thought by scholars, um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and others take this position, that before Christ touches down on the Mount of Olives in victory, he runs an errand, so to speak. He goes to rescue his children from Basra. Basra is the biblical term for the place of Petra, where the remnant of Jews will flee to into the wilderness to escape the wrath of Antichrist. And it says that his apparel is red, like it has been dyed in the wine press. And if you're in the wine press, stomping around, stomping the grapes out, your clothes are bound to get dyed with grape juice. Except on Christ's clothes, it's the blood of the enemies that dyes them. It's not literal grapes. And after that errand of saving his children in Basra, that is Edom in the verse, Christ makes his appearing to the nations who are gathered at Armageddon. And that is when we would see Jesus riding in on this white horse. And there he crushes their war party. All the nations of the earth gathered to make war with God, he crushes them. 
and his name is called the Word of God. This is one of John's favorite titles of Christ. He uses it to open both his gospel and his first letter. And it's believed that John wrote his gospel after he received this revelation. And probably pulling from this experience when writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's how he opens his gospel. I want to ask you how you view the Word of God. Maybe you view it as a collection of historical accounts. Maybe you view it as a book of principles to live by. And certainly there are many principles that we can live by. Maybe you view it more in the lines of doctrine. You view it as a book of theological positions or doctrine. Those are all true in their own respect, but they each rob the scripture of what it really is. The word of God is a man. It's Jesus Christ. The entirety of the scripture points to a man. Just last week, we saw the angel tell John that, quote, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It all points to him. And a personal relationship with him is the strongest theological position. There is no theological position stronger than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. These armies in heaven include believers from the church age, you and I. At the rapture, Jesus comes for the saints. At his second coming, Jesus comes with the saints. And that is who's in view here. The saints, also the heavenly armies of angels. And these armies are following Christ on white horses. You know, and we'll all know how to ride horses when we get there. Verse 15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, this sword that proceeds from his mouth is not literal in the sense that a physical sword is proceeding from his mouth, but it is literal in the sense that his word is his weapon. The word of God is the sword. And this sword is just being used as idiomatic language, just as it was in Revelation 2.12. These things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. You probably also heard Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's well established that this sword is representative of the word of God. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So that sword is a Thracian sword. It's a huge broadsword, double-edged, that has actually been historically recorded as being able to split a man in two from like the clavicle area to the groin. This is a massive bladed weapon. That's the weapon of a warrior. But it says also that Christ will rule the nations with a rod, which was the tool of a shepherd. He is both a king and a shepherd. This reference to Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron can also be traced through the scripture. And we've talked about these references before, so I won't go into great detail. Just list a few out for you real quick. Psalm 2.9, Revelation 2.27, and Revelation 12.5, 
just to get you going. In the Proverbs, the rod as a tool of the shepherd is pictured as a means of discipline and chastisement. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 13, 24. And foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Who knew that? I think that's pretty well founded. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. The rod of correction. That's Proverbs 22, 15. And the rod and rebuke give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Don't want that to happen. That's Proverbs 29, 15. So we see this rod as a tool of discipline. And specifically, this is referring to that rod being a tool of discipline for Jesus in the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign. And it's a discipline with love, no doubt. Again, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And the author of Hebrews actually quoted that from a proverb and a psalm. Jesus also says in his letter to the church in Thyatira, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Revelation 3, 9, 19. Revelation 3.19. So it isn't a bad thing that Jesus will be ruling with a rod of iron. Honestly, there's no one better at ruling than Jesus himself. Chapter 19 in Revelation says, He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It is disturbing just trying to imagine what this scene is going to look like. We see Jesus often depicted as the lamb. And this seems to be people's favorite way of viewing him as a lamb. And he absolutely is, as John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is an accurate view of Jesus. But he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. During his incarnation, he came as the suffering servant portrayed in Isaiah 53. But at his second coming, he comes in power and great glory as a conqueror and a ruler, the lion and the lamb. And you cannot take the lamb at the expense of the lion. It is the same man. You can't take one and ignore the other, or else that's your own version of Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a name that is. We just sang, you are worthy of your name, and he is. It may seem strange to us to have a name written on his thigh, but this was more common for high-ranking cavalrymen back in the day. Their vesture would split around the waist, and in the front, it would cover the two sides, their thighs. And on one of those sides, the title or name of that warrior would be inscribed on the garment. It's an identifying mark, like dog tags. And when he comes, his robe will flow down his thighs on each side of his horse, and on his robe and on his thigh, he bears his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there's a lot of debate. I think it's not really worth a lot of consideration, but scholars and people who know more than I do will argue as to whether this name is written on the vesture, on his robe, or on his thigh, or both. I'm like, what does it matter? It's his name. It's, it, (laughs) 
They waste a lot of time thinking about these things. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who he is. We would do better to turn our attention to the title than rather than the specifics of where this name is written. But this title seems to speak of his victory over the kings of the earth, which he will have at the Battle of Armageddon. He is the king of those kings and the Lord of Lords, and his authority rests in his name. If you remember back a couple chapters in Revelation 17, verses 12 through 14 seem to be Satan's attempt at counterfeiting the title King of Kings. Revelation 17, 12 through 14. As the ten kings receive their authority, they then turn around and turn that authority over to Antichrist. And that makes him a sort of king of those kings. Of course, verse 14 tells you exactly how that's going to play out. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. You can't take it away from him. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And this is the same event that we're looking at in chapter 19, when Jesus comes to crush this rebellion. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And there is another reference to the saints coming with Christ. And they come to make war against the kings of the earth, So Christ brings with him an army of saints. But if you look, you won't find a mention of us fighting. In fact, back in Isaiah 63, which we already read through, it emphasizes his solidarity in fighting this battle alone. He does not need our help. He can accomplish his work. And this is true today also. You know, people tend to get full of themselves. You know, I know that is a surprise, but it's true. People seem to get so full of themselves when they perceive that God is using them. And it's sad to see. And if you've seen the movie Jesus Revolution recently, you see Lonnie Frisbee kind of got full of himself when God started to use him. Lonnie thought that he was the reason a revival was breaking out. Oh, how wrong he was. And we have to be careful who we are glorifying. Are we glorifying ourselves or Christ? I was even talking to someone recently about Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. If you're not familiar And they said, I just can't imagine all the things that would never have happened if Chuck hadn't come in and started this movement. I I actually thought for a second, "Is, is that even true? Would everything with Calvary Chapel, all the other movements that came out of it, would that not have happened if it wasn't for Chuck? I think that Christ can do it. Whether Pastor Chuck was willing or not, he could have just as easily raised someone else up who was willing. So if you want in on the action, humble yourself, make yourself available, and let him use you. See what happens. But if you don't want in on the action, step aside because there's somebody who's going to make themselves available. Now, I do really respect what Pastor Chuck has done, um, and he was faithful to his calling. But it's not fair of us to say that something wouldn't have happened because we don't actually know that. We do not see different paths of history. You remember that God used a donkey to talk to Balaam. Um, Of course he can use a man. And truly, that's all I am is a talking donkey. So... 
Now you have that picture in your mind. <laughs> Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those men, I'm sorry, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Again, a gruesome picture. You know, this isn't the marriage supper of the Lamb that we looked at last week. This would not be a fitting marriage feast, you know. But we have these two feasts, or these two suppers, as it's translated, in view in chapter 19. Last week, we looked at the marriage feast of the Lamb. This week, we see this feast of the birds. It calls it the supper of the great God. And you don't want to get these two confused because they're very different with very different outcomes. We want to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there, you're the guest of honor. The saints are the guests of honor. At this supper, you are the main course. And that is not a good place to be. So make your reservations for the marriage supper of the Lamb and not this one. Okay, And that invitation is open. You can accept that invitation, in effect, by accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now, that sounds really hot, you know, but we don't know exactly what this is going to look like. We know that there were a lot of changes to the solar bodies, the moon, stars, in the tribulation. And here on the back end of the tribulation, things could look differently. Also, I don't think the angel's worried about it. It... It's an angel, okay? He is a spiritual being. So I'm, I'm not getting tripped up over this angel sitting, standing in the sun. Okay, he cried with a loud voice. I thought it was interesting. Loud voice is megas phone. Megaphone. I, I just thought that was interesting. The loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, So, this angel is calling to all the birds in the midst of heaven, that is the second heaven as we would call it, the atmosphere of the earth. So, all the birds who fly around the earth, this angel cries with a loud voice. I don't think he has to use a megaphone. Calling all the birds to this great supper of the great God. Eat the flesh of all of these people, flesh of horses, those who sit on them, flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great, indiscriminate of who you are. If you're on the earth at this time and you have come to blaspheme God, it's not well. You know, things are looking pretty grim for you. Free and slave, both small and great. And there's that same phrase, both small and great. And we saw that just a little bit earlier in reference to somewhere you want to be. This is somewhere where you don't want to be. It doesn't matter your social class, your wealth, who you know, except for one guy. It doesn't matter who you are. You're not judged based on all of those things. You are judged and you are separated based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only determining factor in your eternal destination, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is amazing to me. For so many years, we've been trying to get humanity to work together for something good, 
to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, and just do good in general. Come on, guys. Let's all work together, do something worthwhile. And we just can't get along. But at that point, at the end of the tribulation, humanity finally bands together to make war against God. This is crazy. And the sad part is that they actually think that they have a chance. The Antichrist and the false prophet have so deceived them into thinking that they have a chance to stand up against the creator of everything. The people of the earth are putting their trust in effectively the dragon, Satan, to empower the Antichrist and the false prophet to fight this battle. Picture all of the armies of the world congregating in this valley of Jezreel to fight God. That is the valley of Megiddo, the place of Armageddon. This is the valley that Napoleon dubbed the greatest battlefield on earth. I believe he knew what he was saying when he said that. I mean, of course, these guys are going to have all the best military technology on their side. You know, the F-18s, the B-52s, missiles, nuclear weapons. But all of those can't compare to the power of the one who holds his creation together. Colossians 1.17 says that from all things, Christ made all things, and in him all things consist or are held together. He holds every atom together. If you study physics of smaller things, you know that an atom should not be able to stick together because you have the positive and neutral charges in the nucleus and you have negative charges that are suspended away from that nucleus that are revolving around it. Positive and negative attract. Positive and positive repel. Negative and negative repel. Like charges are supposed to repel. How are all of those positive and neutral, um, those protons and neutrons, holding together in the nucleus of an atom? Different charges are supposed to attract. How are those electrons staying suspended, orbiting around that nucleus. There is some force that scientists don't understand, by the way, that is holding the nucleus together and the protons off of the nucleus. I mean, the electrons off of the nucleus. There's something there. It's Christ. He holds his creation together. Every single atom he holds together the nails that were driven into his hands, he held them together. The cross that he was hung on, he held together. The shards of bone in the whip that took the skin off his back, he held together. The fist of the soldiers who were punching him, bludgeoning him in the face, he held those together. And why did he do that? Because of love. Because he loved you and I, and he wanted to spend eternity with us. That's why. You know, we see these atomic bombs, and they're created by splitting an atom. And we see the devastation and the energy that is released from splitting the atom. If you hold together a spring, you compress it, the energy that it takes to keep it compressed is greater than the sum of the energy it will release when it's let go. The force that's required to hold an atom together is greater than the force that's released when it's let go. Every single atom is being held together by Christ. And they think that they're going to fly an F-18 into his face and destroy him. The math doesn't work out. But they are so deceived 
Verse 20 says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who receive the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. This satanic duo is finally captured. These are the beasts from Revelation 13 that we saw. One comes out of the sea, one comes out of the earth. The false prophet is the beast from the earth. The Antichrist is the beast from the sea. And John reminds us here that the false prophet is the one who performed miracles, signs and wonders, to deceive the nations into worshiping the first beast and his image. It says, These two were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone. So once they were captured, Jesus casts these two into the lake of fire, the final destination of those confined to Hades. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Again, we see this sword, that is his word. The same man who spoke all of creation into existence with his word now destroys that creation with his word. There's a beautiful symmetry there. In the last sentence, it says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That is the flesh of those who blasphemed the name of God. This is a gruesome scene, and I really can't quite imagine this. But that angel in verse 17 called all the birds to this supper of the great God. And now they're arriving, and they're doing their job. I'm sure that the skies are blacked out in this valley with all the birds. The birds of prey, the scavengers, all congregating in this huge basin of a valley to feast. I think that Revelation 14.20, which we looked at, several weeks ago, is speaking of this very scene. It says, And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now this language of the winepress is used in verse 15 of chapter 19 in conjunction with this event of Armageddon. And the valley of Megiddo where the nations will gather for this battle, is shaped like a huge bowl. It's perfect for treading grapes. And it just happens to be 1,600 furlongs, 1,600 furlongs from Basra, which is Petra, where the Jews sought refuge during the tribulation. Now, we briefly alluded to this lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final destination of those souls which are now contained in Hades or hell. And it is truly a very sad thing that any human would have to suffer in this lake of fire because the truth is it was never intended for humans. Jesus actually says in Matthew 25, 41, that this everlasting fire was prepared for Satan and his angels for those evil spiritual beings. But a man condemns himself to this destiny when he rejects Christ. And you say, what about the guy that's never heard of Christ? I trust in God to make a righteous judgment. It says that he judges righteously for all time. I trust him to make that righteous judgment in that case. Here's the problem that you're faced with this morning. You're not that guy that has never heard anymore. Now you have heard, and it's on you to make a decision. You have to decide who Christ is to you. Is he a good teacher? 
is he a nice guy? Which he wasn't necessarily. Not all the time. Calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he your Savior? It's that question on which eternity hangs. That's the only thing on which eternity hangs. There's nothing else that you need to be concerned with if you have not accepted Christ than accepting him. Come as you are. There is no need to get your act together before you come to him. Salvation, sanctification, glorification. Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Christ. That happens after salvation. He has to be reigning in your heart before he can do a work in your heart. If you have any questions about what accepting Christ looks like, please come talk to me after service, and I'd be happy to visit with you about that. Now, for our next session, next Sunday, we're going to be getting into chapter 20. And I'd like you to read Revelation 20, and we're going to be talking about the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, that kingdom age. And we actually know more about that from other parts of the scripture, other than Revelation, than we do know about it from Revelation itself. So I challenge you to find some of those places that talk about the millennium in other places of scripture, because we'll reference a few. The millennium is one of the issues that most divides the body of Christ. It's very hotly debated. And we'll talk about some of the history of that, how that came to be a a big question that people ask, and why we believe what we believe. And that is that Jesus will literally come to earth to reign for a thousand years. We'll look at the implications that those beliefs carry next week. Now let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank you.